Hi, this is Emily with a quick listener note that this week's podcast includes brief mentions of sexual harassment. For more details, you can take a look at our show notes. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing a rundown of the week's headlines. But first the caveat that we are using the term week very loosely here. We're recording on a Wednesday, so we roughly mean the past seven days. And of course, we won't be covering anything that happens in between Wednesday and Friday this week because clairvoyance is not one of the skills we have to offer. If it were, our jobs would be a whole lot easier. Uh, And it started out as a pretty quiet week, but we knew deep down in our bones that that would not last. And again, this is not as a result of clairvoyance, but because of a much more potent supernatural force. Highly potent. Yeah, very dangerous and and, and good to be aware of. Uh, and that is the curse of Andy Ricketts. It could be that that deep down bones uh, feeling is a near relative of clairvoyance. But, you know, if it is, it's definitely like a fourth cousin or something like that. Yes, a fourth cousin and also born of bitter experience, I would say. But what is the curse, Rebecca? What is the curse? The Curse of Andy Ricketts. So obviously listeners of the podcast will be familiar with Andy Ricketts. Lovely fellow, charming fellow. Um, (laughs) He is our news editor um, and he was on a well-deserved holiday last week. And the curse is that every time he goes away, a large story will break. So, you know, the Oxfam scandal happened. Mm -hmm. Guess who was on holiday? Um, And yeah, any number, any number of big stories that will, will happen while he is away. Uh, Yes, of course, this week, uh, on this occasion, it was the publication of the Chartered Institute of Fundraising's long-awaited report into allegations of sexual harassment. So an independent investigation conducted by the consultancy Tell Jane was launched in March this year to look into complaints made against a Chartered Institute fellow and into allegations that the CIOF had been made aware of his behaviour and had failed to act. The full investigation report has still not been released, but a summary report was published by the CIOF board last week. The investigation upheld four allegations of sexual harassment against a CIOF fellow. And according to the report, the allegations against the fellow include sexual harassment at regional group events, sexual harassment at special interest group events, sexual harassment of an individual CIOF member, not at an institute event, and sexual harassment at the fundraising convention 2014. Investigators concluded that on the balance of probabilities, the behaviour described by multiple complainants was likely to have taken place and to have amounted to sexual harassment. The man, who has not been named, has been permanently stripped of his CIOF membership, removed as a fellow and banned from all future CIOF events. The CIOF has said that this ban will be enforced through a new central screening process for participants in Chartered Institute events and activities. Right. And on top of that, The report says that there were, quote, clear organisational and governance failings in our culture and processes that let down survivors and allowed a man accused of sexual harassment by multiple people to continue to participate in events and training. The report also concluded that the organisation's former chief executive, Peter Lewis, bore some responsibility for those failings. It said Lewis, who stepped down in June, bears responsibility, along with other trustees and staff, for not taking action sooner in tackling these cultural and organisational failings. The CIOF had previously issued a statement in June, which coincided with Lewis's departure, saying the investigation had found no wrongdoing by Lewis. But the CIOF later admitted it shouldn't have published the statement and it has apologised. 
The report said the board wanted to clarify the statement issued in June 2021 was not intended to suggest that the former CEO bought no responsibility for the identified failings in governance and management of the Chartered Institute. But in terms of whether Lewis was aware of the complaints against the fellow in 2014 specifically, the report said there was not sufficient evidence available at the time to conclude definitively what happened, although it did acknowledge that there weren't the mechanisms in place to record and recognise informal complaints. In a statement given to Third Sector, Peter Lewis said, quote, I would like to again express my heartfelt apologies to any women who have been let down by the Chartered Institute of Fundraising. I have always been committed to creating a safe and inclusive fundraising profession and have always taken any complaints brought to my attention seriously and acted upon them. Lewis added, the allegation that in 2014 a complaint was brought to my attention and that I did not act on it has been investigated twice. Both investigations cleared me of any wrongdoing. So this issue of 2014 is really important. A number of the complainants have said they felt the scope of the investigation was really narrow and that kind of regardless of what happened in 2014, there were other times when the CIOF had the opportunity to act and didn't. And this report does acknowledge that. And as a result, the board of the CIOF has decided to commission a completely independent review looking into this issue of whether the CIOF has failed to act on wider allegations of sexual misconduct. So not just in relation to this member and not just in relation to 2014. We don't know when that's going to happen yet, but obviously we will keep you posted and up to date on on how that unfolds. And I think there is still a lot more to come from this story. And and clearly it's, you know, it, it's an issue that a lot of fundraisers feel incredibly strongly about uh, and very passionate about. We did, if you want to hear more, we did do uh, an episode on this um, a few weeks back. So if you go back uh, and scroll back through the Third Sector podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts, we spoke to uh, Ruby Bailey, who was someone who was instrumental in kind of bringing this conversation to the fore in 2018. So that was one major headline from the last week. Um, next up, we were also following the ongoing situation with the animal rescue charity Nauzad. Nauzad was formed by the former Marine Pen Farthing to treat sick animals in Afghanistan, as well as organising for cats and dogs to find new homes elsewhere. Over the last fortnight, the Kabul-based charity shot to national attention when Farthing appeared on Facebook Live outlining the desperate situation the charity's staff were in as the Taliban closed on Kabul. An emergency appeal titled Operation Ark raised more than £200,000 in less than a week to charter a private flight to get more than 150 animals and the charity's 71 staff out of the country. But following huge difficulties at Kabul airport and accusations of ministers blocking the flight, the flight landed in Heathrow this week with pen farthing, 170 animals and none of the charity's staff on board. A voicemail message of Farthing verbally abusing a political advisor to Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, which accused him and the minister of blocking the flight, was leaked to the Times over the bank holiday weekend. So this has been a story, right? Like It's been uh, gathering a lot of headlines over the last fortnight, and there have certainly been a lot of highs and lows going on. Um, I found the whole thing uh personally just to be incredibly messy mm. and there have been lots of different elements to it um of course you know we saw this incredibly successful fundraising campaign from Nowzad over the last fortnight or so and i think whatever your opinion on the mission itself and the values and the, the kind of the cause that the charity was pursuing, um, you have to be impressed by the way that by tapping into both traditional media and social media, Farthing and his organisation were able to gather this large group of incredible 
incredibly vocal supporters about his course, as well as, you know, mainstream celebrity support. Um, I think by any metric, being able to organise that movement should be considered impressive. Mm. However, you know, as Farthing himself put it on touching down in the UK, the campaign was only a partial success. Now, partial success, those are Farthing's words. I think that's uh, quite a light, um, quite a gentle phrase as well, um, because the reality is that none of the charity's Afghan staff made it on board that rescue plane. And, you know, let's be clear, we're talking about female vets who are not going to get treated well by the Taliban. It's also illegal under the Taliban to keep pets at all. So anyone that's been working with dogs presumably is in some kind of danger from this. Yes. And there has been, you know, a lot of uh, criticism about the mission, especially in Whitehall, about the airtime that it took up during this much wider critical evacuation period. So that's something that we have been seeing a lot across a number of channels as well. By any measure, I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan has just been a colossal mess. I I think we probably both agree on that. Um, But given that everything was very time sensitive, a lot of people were kind of condemning the charity and its supporters for kind of drawing the media spotlight onto what they were doing rather than the humanitarian disasters that were unfolding more broadly. And um, So Tom Tugendhat is the Conservative MP for Tombridge, Edenbridge and Malling. And he's an ex-serviceman who has been hugely critical of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And he was questioned about Nauzad in an LBC interview last week. And he pointed out, you know, that the biggest strain on that wider evacuation operation was that process of getting people through the airport. It wasn't about physical room on the planes. It wasn't about filling seats so much as it was the time it took to process this enormous volume of people who were trying to flee the country. So during this interview, Tugendhat said, quote, you know, we've just used a lot of troops to get in 200 dogs. Meanwhile, my interpreter's family is likely to be killed. When one interpreter asked me a few days ago, why is my five-year-old worth less than a dog? I didn't have an answer. Yeah. Because what answer do you give to that? Yeah, there is. There's no answer for that, is there? No, I've said, I say I completely agree with you. And like my thoughts on this story are quite disorganised. I'm not sure if that's because I don't know it's nuanced or because it's it's a mess the mm. whole thing. Um, but I, I Palmy thinks it does say something about the British public that this is the story that we've latched onto. Do you know what I mean? I actually I'm not sure that that is the charity's fault. No, absolutely not. You know, yes, they've been they've been running this campaign, but they do what they do and. It is both the beauty and the sadness of the voluntary sector that it's about what people care enough. It's voluntary. People do what they want, you know, that they give their time and their money to the thing that means the most to them. I think we do have to have a look at ourselves that, that, you know, what we seem to have latched onto here is, is this story about dogs, cats and dogs, and not people who are in a terrifying situation. Um, You know, there are stories of women passing you know, their children through fences to soldiers in the uniform of the occupying force. That's, you don't do that unless something is, is you know, something worse is coming. Yeah. And, and also just to, to, to bounce onto that, you know, there are a, a large number of extraordinary um, humanitarian charities who have also been on the ground in Kabul over this same time period and, um, you know, doing incredible things to support vulnerable people, to support refugees trying to leave the country. And for whatever reason, you know, their work 
did not galvanize like the profile that this particular campaign did. Yeah, which I think actually comes down to part of it is that this is a little bit of a dead cat issue, if you will excuse the phrasing. You know, we're all arguing about whether or not Nowzad should have done what's what it's done, you know, whether we needed to get the dogs out, we need to get anybody else out, rather than actually talking about how the government handled a catastrophic situation that it should have seen coming hundreds of miles off. The Taliban has been marching towards Kabul for weeks and mm. it should have done something about it. And I do think it's interesting that the FCO, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, hasn't had time to respond to questions that, you know, our colleague Stephen Delahunty has been putting in to them about what other charities are on the ground. Who else are you trying to get out? They haven't had time to answer those questions. Um, yeah. But they have had time to leak a voice message to the Times. Potentially leak a voice message to the Times. Well, some, someone's leaked it. Someone's um, leaked it to the Times. It could be the FCO. It could be anybody else. Yes, but it's interesting that that information gets out and our query to the press office, they haven't had time to answer. And and what about that voicemail message? What about that voice note? I don't, I've heard a lot of hand-wringing about the language um, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm very forgiving of four-letter words generally and I, I do think if you're desperately trying to get away from the Taliban, a few expletives can be forgiven, frankly. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the tone and the threat... You know, using the media was a mistake, though. You know, that's sort of the whole thing was he was saying, I'm going to make you to this spad. You know, I'm going to make you really famous. Everyone's going to know you're the problem. That did come off as bullying. And I also think strategically, it's just a silly move because the press don't like to think they can be used in that way. I mean, they absolutely can. And one could argue they are being used in that way. But you're not supposed to come out and just say it. And I think it makes you look bullying. It makes your character. It sets you up for them to you know, for that leak to happen. So yeah, I think I think that was it was a daft move. I sort of see where it came from, but also, you know, and, and some of the reporting around it was that he was he was only talking about the animals and actually he was in fairness talking about the staff. But yeah, it was a it was a bullying message, I think. I should say that Farthing has subsequently apologised for the expletive-laden message, um, saying that his emotions got the better of him uh, when he left it for the government aid and just saying that he was at the lowest point he could possibly be. Obviously, thoughts really still with those people trapped in Afghanistan, you know, those who work for Nowzad and others. It's it's a horrific situation. It's still unfolding. Charities are doing an amazing job trying to support the people who are getting out and also the people who haven't got out. And I'm sure we're going to hear more from that again, you know, in the coming months. Yeah, no doubt. At the tail end of last week, we had the surprising news that the Digital Secretary has suggested the UK could move away from the requirements of the General Data Protection Regulation now that the country has left the European Union. So Oliver Dowden, the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, said last week that following Brexit, UK data laws could be reformed to involve, quote, less box ticking. Huh. Oh God, I, I, I was so much less than delighted to see this rear its head last week. I can't even. Mm. So the GDPR was introduced by the EU in 2018 and um, it became part of UK law as part of the Data Protection Act 2018. And essentially it established more stringent standards for how organisations use personal data than had previously been in force. As a result, charities faced tighter rules about whether and how they could contact potential donors. And it was a massive deal when it was introduced. Uh, there was just so much anxiety and fear around the level of reforms that might be needed for charities. 
what it might mean for fundraising, whether it was going to mean they were going to bring in less money, whether, you know, what that was going to mean for the charities, you know, and, and just a hell of a lot of work went into ensuring that charities were compliant and just energy and time. And you know what, by and large, I think charities really have been compliant with GDPR. They found ways to make it work and to use people's data responsibly, as well as contacting people who do want to hear from them. Absolutely. I mean, when Andy Ricketts and I um, recorded the GDPR podcast a couple of weeks back, one of the things he said was we had a huge amount of demand for stories about the GDPR mm. when it came out in 2018 because people were so concerned about this. Yeah, it was it was fear, like absolute absolute fear. And now they might just row it back again and put something <laughs> possibly similar, but perhaps slightly new in place. Um, Oliver Dowden has not given any indication of how these rules might change or how the potential reform could affect charities specifically. He simply said, now that we've left the EU, I am determined to seize the opportunity by developing a world-leading data policy that will deliver a Brexit dividend for individuals and businesses across the UK. Dowden said this would mean reforming our own data laws so that they are based on common sense, not box ticking. And he also talked about a new era of data driven growth and innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Like you say, very scant on the details. He's clearly not thinking about charities, which is fair enough because this applies to all organisations. But yeah, honestly, I'll be really surprised if they do dramatically reverse it. You know, Dowden's comments there, there's a lot of emphasis on like the, the subtext is is kind of, oh, it's so annoying to have to fill in those little consent forms for everything. <laughs> you know, all those sorts of things and, and the cookie forms, which I think are covered by a different piece of legislation called PECA. Um, but yeah, Actually, I think a lot of people understand that filling in those forms mean they don't get hit with an avalanche of spam mail. And I think, honestly, people are most, you know, most people are happy about that trade off and wouldn't rush to give it up. Um, I certainly, somebody has sold my phone number to a spam company and I keep getting fake voicemails with like a fake message or like text messages that tell me I have a voicemail and I've got to click on this definitely not dodgy link. And it's driving me nuts. Like, I think people are actually, because of GDPR and all the conversations that all organisations, companies and charities had to have with consumers, I think people actually are happier about being in control of their data, even if it does mean a bunch of annoying forms. And I mean, particularly for charities, I think people do have a slightly weird tendency to get more upset by spam from charities than stuff from private companies attempting to sell them stuff. Um, so I do think even if you know a huge number of restrictions are lifted, they go, no, you don't need consent, don't worry about legitimate interest, none of it matters. I'm not sure we'll see charities rushing to bombard people with fundraising mail. I think they'll realise that that is a mistake and is, is just going to wind a lot of people up. Um, you know, that said there might be places where some things could be loosened up. So at the moment, depending on how data was collected and so on, it can be quite tricky to send some donors something as innocuous as, as you know, thank you letter or, or email or, or contact. And as Daniel Flusky at the CIOF pointed out, this might be an area that could benefit from a little bit of relaxation, just a kind of recalibrating of the rules. So, so it's possible that maybe there, rather than just wholesale kind of nope, getting rid of it, there might just be some tweaking that goes on. Um, but overall, I have a lot of sympathy with something that the fundraising consultant Sarah Goddard said to me about this story. Uh, she said, oh, after so much charity time, money, resource and effort went into and still goes into making sure organisations are GDPR compliant, there's likely to be a huge amount of anxiety in the sector over the prospect of having to go through something similar again or to know that that investment was so large 
for so little that we're all just going to undo it. Like, I think that was, that really summed up my feeling when this, this kind of hit my desk the other day of just like, oh God, here we go again. And I mean, I didn't even, I just had to write about it. I didn't have to rewrite policies or work out how it was going to affect our job. So I do, yeah, a lot of sympathy there for charities that may have to deal with this in the future. Absolutely. Um, in more big fundraising news, the online fundraising platform Virgin Money Giving announced that it will be closing its doors in November. Virgin Money Giving was launched to support the Virgin Money Bank's sponsorship of the London Marathon in 2009. But that partnership is going to come to an end after this year's race. And as a result, the bank carried out a strategic review of the fundraising platform and has concluded that given the significant investment required in the service for it to remain competitive and without the brand exposure provided by the London Marathon, Virgin Money has decided to wind down the platform. It said it would continue to offer a full service for charities and fundraisers until the service closes for donations on the 30th of November and that it will support charities to find alternative platforms where needed. But despite plans to move staff around within the bank, it's expected that up to 26 people will be made redundant. Announcing the move, the bank said that it had helped 20,000 charities and more than a million fundraisers raise over £900 million online during its time in operation. All charities currently registered with the service, fundraisers with live pages and regular donors will be contacted by the bank with details of the changes. Big news, this one. Yeah, really big. And I yeah, I think this story is really interesting because, you know, for a few years, online fundraising platforms were just seen as this huge growth market. You know, you had loads of companies setting up their own version. So obviously in the UK, Just Giving was kind of very much viewed as the OG charity giving platform. That was kind of the oldest and kind of felt like it was before it was sold to Blackboard, very much of the sector. It was a product that grew out of the sector and the sector's need. Um, obviously, there was also Virgin Money. There was BT My Donate, Everyday Hero, Givey, Crowdfunder, GoFundMe. Um, and some of those started out as purely charity giving platforms. Some of them, like Crowdfunder, GoFundMe, were much more general crowdfunding platforms, which kind of you know developed a charity-focused offshoot to kind of cash in on that market. Um, and you know, these platforms have revolutionized charity giving. Like I and I say this every time it comes up, you know, you remember in the old days when somebody was running a race and they had to go around with a clipboard and get people to write their names and then collect the money afterwards. Like it is so different now and so much easier. And yeah, it just they've just changed it. Supporters can collect sponsorship uh, and raise money quickly and easily and securely, very importantly. But yeah, it seems that clearly the market has started to shrink. BT My Donate closed in 2019. Everyday Hero in 2020. And then this year, it's one of the giants in the market, really, Virgin Money Giving. Um, and I do wonder how much of this has to do with the regular rows about fees in the Daily Mail and so on. Like you just used to be able to set your watch by, oh, it's that time of year again. Is it the Daily Mail's having a go at picking the pockets of terrorism victims or something? Because <laughs> you know, that, that, was, that was a genuine story. I think that was an MP that said that. Really? Yeah, for real. Um, I think that was after the London Bridge attack that people set up, people set up fundraising pages. And of course, those fundraising pages, they charged fees to operate. And actually, everybody in the charity sector was pretty cool with that because this service was revolutionary. They made so much money than they would without it. They didn't actually have to do that much work to raise money because people would spontaneously be like, I want to give as a result of this. They would go, they would set their fundraising page up. The money would go straight to the charity. Happy days. Yeah, they made so much more money as a result of having the service that actually nobody minded the 2% fee. But then the Daily Mail would run a story where they would tot up how much had been given after an attack or, or a disaster and then say, oh, Just Giving made a profit on the disaster, um, which I kind of think, well, so did the internet service providers and the newspapers. And it, it, it felt like a very selective and silly argument that would 
blow up time and time again. And so gradually we saw, you know, these platforms getting rid of their fees. And I just wonder if that has had something to do with reducing how many of these platforms we can have in the market functioning properly. I, I don't know that for sure. But, you know, yeah, it, it, was just, it was a silly argument. And yeah, it led to, so Just Giving brought in a thing where the donor could choose to cover the fee. I think Virgin Money Giving waived their fee during the pandemic as well. Uh, and there was the option, I think, to cover on, on Virgin Money Giving too. And it's really interesting that Virgin Money Giving, um, so Joe Barnett, who was the chief exec, who we've had on the podcast previously, you know, was they were always making the point that they had the backing of a big bank to keep them stable and keep the tech up and running, um, you know, and, and that that was important. And that's, you know, that's why these platforms needed to charge or to have this big backing was so that they could ensure that their tech worked well. Um, I mean, famously, Virgin Money Giving did have a bit of a short, an outage just before one of the races, one of the marathons a few years ago. Um, but, you know, they were always, they had the back of this big bank to keep them stable. And clearly that goes both ways. When the bank was no longer interested, they've pulled the plug. They have, and leaving a lot of fundraisers and charities that relied on it, needing to transfer to a new platform a month before Christmas. <sighs> Why did you do that? Why? It is the 1st of September as we record today. Why do we need to mention the C word? It's the beginning of autumn. Yes, autumn. Christmas is not in autumn. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <sighs> You're just wishing my life away, Bert. Oh, we're closer to it than we are far away from it. Stop wishing my life away, Bert. Um, <laughs> but yes, so no, that'll be interesting to see what happens in that market there. And yes, Christmas fundraising is a big deal. And now you've made me say the word. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. It's on the way. We're into the autumn now. Each week we are bringing you a good news bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we've spotted in the charity sector. Yep. So this week, uh, former charity worker Ellen Buttrick has won gold in the Tokyo Paralympic Games, which yep. is yay, fantastic. Um, so she was part of the PR3 Mixed Coxed 4 rowing team. And yeah, they won gold over the weekend. Ellen used to work as an office coordinator for the Refugee Council. And along with teammates, Jane Fox, Ollie Stanhope, Giedry Rauskaitier and the Cox, Erin Kennedy, finished with 11.5 seconds clear of the closest challengers, the USA, at the weekend. That's a mighty achievement. It is indeed. Well done to them. It is indeed. So Ellen was diagnosed with Stargardt disease in 2014, uh, and that's an inherited eye condition which affects the retina and causes a reduction in the central detailed vision. So she's got peripheral vision, but her central vision is blurred. Um, and she said she discovered rowing a couple of years before that. And when she was diagnosed with the condition, uh, she says her immediate response was to ask, does this mean I can row in the Paralympic Games? Which, I mean... What a great attitude to have. Right? Genuinely impressive. So yeah, and not only has she rowed in the Paralympic Games... She's won gold. She's snagged a gold. She's only gone and smashed it. Yeah, won a gold medal. So congratulations, Ellen. Uh, the charity sector's loss is very much the Paralympic Games gain. Humanitarian worker, Paralympic champion. That's a pretty cool thing to have on your CV. All round good egg. That's all from us. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.